biologist David Sloan Wilson has written a curious novel called Atlas Hugged, which he calls a sequel. Uh, allegedly the sequel to Ayn Rand's Atlas Shrugged, quote, in the form of a satirical academic critique. Now, a serious attempt by an honest scholar to critically engage with Rand's writings and ideas would be a welcome development. But is that what one finds in Atlas Hugged? Today, we're gonna to discuss Wilson's novel, its critique of objectivism, and its arguments for a certain form of collectivism. Uh, so welcome to New Ideal Live. This is the podcast of the Ayn Rand Institute. Today, we're talking about David S. Wilson's sequel, Atlas Hugged or Atlas Mugged. My name is Ben Baer. I'm a fellow at ARI. With me is Keith Lockich, uh, an ARI senior fellow. Um, today, Hello. we're going to be taking questions. Hi, Keith. Uh, we'll be taking questions toward the end, uh, either through Zoom or through Super Chat, if you'd like to support the channel. Yeah, before we even get started, I want to give a warning about plot spoilers. So because Atlas Hugged is meant to be a kind of sequel to Atlas Shrugged, we can't really talk about it properly without talking about you know, the events of Atlas Shrugged and the ending of Atlas Shrugged and, and revealing some of the mysteries that make Atlas Shrugged a suspenseful novel. So I know that some people don't really care about plot spoilers, but Atlas Shrugged you know, is one book for which it really makes a big difference to not know how it turns out the first time you read it. There's a huge amount of mystery and suspense that gets built up in the novel. And the resolution of that mystery and suspense is, is what part of the experience. You know, this is why millions of fans of the novel call it, you know, like a mind-blowing, life-changing experience. So if anyone's watching this who has not yet read Atlas Shrugged, I strongly urge you, turn off this podcast, you know, turn off your computer, go pick up Atlas Shrugged instead. You know, there's a reason why it still sells millions and millions of copies and continues to attract readers more than 60 years after it was published. And I would also add that if you have read it before, uh, one th we won't be spoiling the plot for you, but there's different levels at which you can read Atlas Shrugged. You can read it at a superficial level. You can read it at a deeper level. I strongly suspect that uh, David Wilson read it at a kind of superficial level. So any of you who are interested in getting a deeper insight into what the book is actually about, uh, I do recommend, and I'll, sh I'll share later uh, information on how you can watch something called The Atlas Project, which we did here at ARI two or three years ago, an in-depth uh, podcast about the book. Yeah, and just as an aside, so we're, so because we want to we want to talk about the book Atlas Hug, well, we'll give spoilers for that as well. I'm not going to urge you to rush out to read that novel. Uh, it's not quite the same literary experience as, as Atlas Shrugged, but I just want to give a fair warning that there will be plot spoilers for both books. And, and just to give a little bit of background, what this book is about, Keith's going to give you more. Um, it, it's it's a little hard to warn against plot spoilers for a story that technically doesn't really have a plot. Um, I mean, it has. There's a sort of there's a series of events that happen, and I think some people will find them interesting. Uh, but what it is is a kind of mythical reality, a mythical alternate, alternate reality where the objectivist movement has taken over the world. Uh, you know, would that that were so. Sometimes the author seems to speak as if he thinks it's actually true. Um, that's 
probably a product of confusing objectivism with with conservatism, which is perhaps something we'll talk about among the different misrepresentations of the philosophy. But in this alternate reality, the grandson of John Galt, the hero of Atlas Shrugged, here's the story. He uh, goes to school, he takes biology classes, he discovers that evolution is the secret of life. From this, he thinks he infers that individualism is false uh, and that a version of collectivism is true. Using the fortune that he has gotten from his, uh, from his father, he leads a true objectivist movement to topple the old evil objectivist movement. Um, and notably, and this is why I say there really isn't any kind of plot, he doesn't really encounter any obstacles or serious internal conflicts along the way in doing it. He discovers these truths, he tells people about them, they, they almost instantaneously agree with him, and there's a movement to topple the uh, evil objectivist empire, as he calls it, in favor of what he calls true objectivism. Um, so I don't think there's much plot there to spoil, uh, which, I mean, it's, 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 it's a curious kind of novel in the first place in that it's, it's written as more of an intellectual tract, which we'll talk about later. But you might be wondering uh, if this book is going to have the flaws that we're about to note, why even bother talking about it? Why give it any attention? And uh, I think that there is a reason to do it. And the fact is that there is a small audience of people uh, who are hearing about this book, uh, especially among the kind of secular humanist community. Uh, and some of them are going to hear about Ayn Rand for the first time through this book. And we want this podcast to be on YouTube and everywhere else so that if somebody finds out about Ayn Rand from David Wilson, uh, they can search David Wilson, Ayn Rand, and they will find this podcast. And then we want to give them the opportunity to actually learn something about what objectivism actually means, what it actually stands for, what its actual ideas are, uh, and also how objectivism is a lot deeper and, than the superficial caricature that Wilson presents it as being. And it even has the resources to answer the arguments uh, that he presents against it uh, in his book. So that's, that's why we're doing this. If it weren't, if it weren't for the opportunity to reach that audience, we wouldn't want to give this the light of day because it's not worthy of any attention besides that reason, really. There's also a few interesting, I think, intellectual things we can learn by answering the arguments that he gives. And we'll spend some time talking about that today. So Keith, um, you, you, you wanted to start out, I think, by commenting on, uh, the, the supposition that this is supposed to be taken as a sequel to Atlas Shrugged yeah. and how seriously we should think about that. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good place to start. And, you know, when I, I don't think we should spend the whole time on this because the main thing we want to get to is, you know, the, 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 rep, the way objectivism is presented and whether it's accurate and that sort of thing. But um, I mean, the reason to start with the idea of Atlas Hugged being a, is it a sequel or is it not a sequel? If one of the main questions you want to explore is whether this, as you said in your opening, is this a serious attempt by an honest scholar to engage critically with Rand's writings and ideas? And I think we can learn a lot about that question by looking at how Wilson sets up his story and the ideas and the characters in his story in relation to those elements in Atlas Shrugged. So in what sense is this really a sequel? And this was this is like the final warning about plot spoilers. Here's where they start. So so Atlas Hugged 
is, is the autobiography of John Galt III. That's the subtitle of the book. So John Galt I is, of course, the John Galt, the main hero of Atlas Shrugged. And this is, so this is John Galt III is Wilson's imagined grandson of John Galt. So John Galt III is, is the narrator and he's kind of telling his own story, but his story begins by recounting the story of his grandfather, John Galt I, and you know, what supposedly happens during and after the events of Atlas Shrugged. So Wilson is sort of reimagining the events of Atlas Shrugged to set up his own story. So to me, this sort of sounds like it's in the genre of what you might call fan fiction, though obviously he's not a fan. Uh, and, and even the worst fan fiction uh, is, is a little different from what's happening here because it doesn't, it doesn't try to rewrite or, or ask you to reimagine the events of the original source material that it's supposed to be an homage to. And here it's a, an anti-homage. Um, how far does some of the rewriting, how, how far would you characterize this rewriting as going? Yeah, well, I, so I think it's worth actually digging into a few specific examples um, of how he's reimagining various elements of Atlas Shrugged to see. So one question with a sequel is, is there any attempt to maintain any sort of continuity or consistency between the two works? So just to just to give a concrete example of this, let's look at, let's think about Wilson's portrayal of John Galt and his motor. Okay, now in Atlas Shrugged, Galt's motor is a kind of science fiction element of the novel. It's a motor that can convert static electricity into, in the atmosphere, into usable energy. And you can use it to drive a train or power an electric grid or whatever. So it's a machine that can produce an unlimited supply of energy at almost no cost. Now, of course, in the real world, there is no such thing as a motor like this. Though, interestingly, I think it is worth mentioning that you know, there were scientists in the 19th century who looked into this question of whether you can draw usable electricity from the atmosphere. And I think, and my understanding is that Ayn Rand was aware that scientists had done research into this question. So it's not completely imaginary. And I think this is an example, like the best science fiction draws on actual science and research and then sort of projects it beyond what's real into the fictional universe. And so um, so this is the way in which the motor is kind of an element of science fiction in Atlas Shrugged. And it plays an important role in the story. Its purpose in the story is to dramatize the role of the mind in improving human life. In Atlas Shrugged, you know, the invention of this motor is part of the characterization of John Galt as a scientific genius who's discovered, you know, whole new principles of physics that make the motor possible. And and the motor and this way of characterizing Galt are critical elements of the plot of the story and the overall philosophical meaning of the story. So it's integral to the meaning of Atlas Shrugged that, you know, the motor is real and that Galt, you know, is a, is a genius and a paragon of rationality. That's the original source material. <laughs> What's, what is the, re, the reimagining of it look like? Yeah, I mean, so, ask, so I've read this. So I'm, I'm setting you up for the. <laughs> this is, so so right. yeah, so in so so that's so that's what Galt and the motor are in Atlas Shrugged. Now, in Wilson's kind of reimagined backstory of John Galt the first, um, it turns out that all of this is a big fraud. That Galt had the idea for a motor like this, but was never able to actually make it work. Um, 
and he's portrayed in Atlas Hugged, the way this is presented is he's, he, was a, he was a big huckster who managed to talk investors into funding his research. And, and he lied to them about his total failure to invent anything. Now, in Atlas Hugged, John Galt Sr., you know, the, the grandfather, is, is totally has disappeared from society. He's totally gone. But towards the end of the novel, he suddenly shows up out of nowhere and tells his story to his grandson, John Galt III. And so I, I wanted to read a quote here. This is what he says about the motors on page 336 of Atlas Hugged, okay? Quote, there was only one problem, reality. It turns out that the real world doesn't always yield to a man's mind. My critics were right. You can't make a machine powered by static electricity. Only I was too proud to admit it or at least to admit that I couldn't do other great things, even if I'd failed in that one case. That's when I went underground. The news reported that I took the plans for the static electricity machine with me, but there were no plans. I had abandoned that project, but couldn't let others know. Before that, I was guilty of arrogance, but not of being a bald-faced liar. Now, I was living with a bald-faced lie, and it ate away at me like a cancer. Now, remember that this is supposed to be the same character as Rand's John Galt. Wilson is calling his book a sequel. Um, I wonder if this is part of the yeah. reason that he's, uh, that he's chosen to rewrite this aspect of the original character is because he thinks that someone like Galt, who's supposedly dedicated to uh, individualism and self-interest, which are ideas we'll see Wilson takes issue with. How could someone so dedicated to selfishness actually be honest or reality focused? And so uh, he, he yeah, needs to draw that's... out the implication of that. Yeah, I think so. So I think you're right. We'll, we'll get to so he has a view of individualism and self-interest that's that's different from Rand's view. And it's and perhaps you're right that this is why he thinks that this is an implication of him. But but the point I'm trying to get at here is that this is this is supposed to be a sequel. This is supposed to be the same John Galt in Atlas Shrugged. It's supposed to be, you know, somebody who not only understands deeply, you know, who 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 was able to succeed in building the motor, you know, is a scientific genius but is also a philosophical genius who has a deep understanding of the nature of honesty. I mean, in Galt's famous speech um, at the end of Atlas Shrugged, he, he talks about the meaning of honesty. And I want to, and I, and I, I, to stress this point, I want to show, I want to read the quote because this is what in Atlas Shrugged, this is what John Galt says about honesty. Honesty is the recognition of the fact that the unreal is unreal and can have no value that neither love nor fame nor cash is a value if obtained by fraud, that an attempt to gain a value by deceiving the mind of others is an act of raising your victim to a position higher than reality, where you become a pawn of their blindness, a slave of their non-thinking and their evasions, while their intelligence, their rationality, their perceptiveness become the enemies you have to dread and flee, that you do not care to live as a dependent, least of all a dependent on the stupidity of others, or as a fool whose source of values is the fools he succeeds in fooling. 
that honesty is not a social duty nor a sacrifice for the sake of others, but the most profoundly selfish virtue man can practice, his refusal to sacrifice the reality of his own existence to the deluded consciousness of others. So the John Galt who appears in Atlas Hugged, who's supposed to be the same character as the John Galt in Atlas Shrugged, is actually his polar opposite in every important respect. Even Galt's speech itself is a lie. And I, and, you know, I think that it's, it's worth going into these details just to really see uh, the full extent of what we're talking about here. In, in Atlas Shrugged, uh, the way Galt's speech is set up is that the world is in a crisis. You know, the economy is collapsing. There's chaos in the streets. And the head of state, Mr. Thompson, has scheduled to deliver a radio broadcast. He's going to explain, give a talk about the state of the country. But his broadcast is interrupted by Galt using super advanced radio jamming technology. So again, it's a testament to his intellectual and scientific prowess. And so Galt interrupts the radio broadcast and gives his speech instead. So that's what happens in Atlas Shrugged. Now, how is this reimagined in Atlas Hugged? Well, in Atlas Hugged, this is all just a big fraudulent publicity stunt. It's, it's imagined as being something like H.G. Wells' you know, War of the Worlds, where it's an imagined radio broadcast. So what actually happened, well, in, in Wilson's retelling, what actually happened is Midas Mulligan paid for the airtime, and then they pre pretended that Galt was interrupting the broadcast you know, and giving his speech. So, so the whole speech in which Galt articulates his view of honesty is supposed to be a giant lie. So, um, yeah, I mean, so, so this is how, you know, the events of Atlas Shrugged are being reimagined here. I suppose that somebody, and including Wilson himself, could respond at this point by saying, well, that's why it's fiction. He's taking artistic liberties like any other novelist. And so he, just like the events of Atlas Shrugged, the original were invented in the first place, he can, he can rewrite uh, those events himself, if it makes a certain point. And maybe his point yeah. is that selfish people don't actually uh, care about honesty. And so, I mean, how well, would you respond to that defense? Well, I think the part about selfish people and honesty, we'll get, we'll get to that later when we talk about his analysis of objectivism. But what, so what, what's the point in going into all this detail about, about the way he's reimagining the story? So, um, I mean, I think you're right. He could, he could legitimately say, that he's writing his own novel. You know, as a fiction writer, he has the license to do whatever he wants to. If he wants to reimagine Rand's character in his own story, he can do whatever he wants to, right? So, and there's this, I mean, and I agree with you, there's a sense in which that's true. A fiction writer has the license to invent his own world and his own story, so he doesn't have to be consistent with how Rand characterizes Galt in Atlas Shrugged. But the problem is, he's at the same time, he's trying to claim that this, that his novel is an academic critique of Rand's worldview. In other words, he's trying to claim that he's taking Rand's ideas seriously and offering a critique of her actual philosophy. So if he's making up an account of her characters and the events of her novel that bear no relation to the original and that actually contradict the meaning of her story, you know, how is that a critique of what she actually wrote? So I really think that what Wilson is doing here is he's, he's trying to have his cake and eat it too. He's trying to pretend that this book is a sequel 
you know, that connects with and proceeds from the events and the meaning of Atlas Shrugged in order to then offer an intellectual critique. And yet it doesn't connect at all with the events or the meaning of Atlas Shrugged. It completely distorts them and it outright contradicts them. And that's the basis for his critique. And I mean, this is not the only example. I think we should, we, I don't want to give more examples, but the whole backstory that Atlas hugged, in Atlas Hugged that supposedly recounts the events of Atlas Shrugged completely contradicts everything that's important about the events, the characters, and the intellectual meaning of the novel. So the idea that this is an attempt to write an actual sequel, I mean, that's what I would regard as a real fraud. Uh, it, it's a it's a complete intellectual fraud to think to even pretend that this is any kind of sequel. Um, just one last point because I think we need we need this for some of the things that'll come out later. He even he Wilson sort of concocts a bizarre blending of the fictional universe of Atlas Shrugged with our world. I mean, you mentioned that there's an objectivist movement in Atlas Hugged, and and somehow this this all came out as a result of Galt's speech. Um, and there's even, there's a character in Atlas Hugged named Ayn Rand, who of course is supposed to represent Rand herself. And, and this is where I think this turns from just being merely ridiculous to being outright offensive and, and even disgusting. If you, if you were to collect all the most, you know, vicious, dishonest smears that people who hate Ayn Rand have invented and create a character out of it, this is what you would get. Um, so, we could say a lot more about, you know, the, as a sequel, but I, I, I think we should move on. I, I think we've made the point that there's, there's a way in which this is a, is, a, is a contradiction. It's an attempt to, at the same time, take the license that a fiction writer has to invent whatever story he wants, while at the same time also pretending that this is actually an attempt to engage with Rand's ideas, engage with her novel, and write a, quote, sequel to the novel. Yeah, and I think the, the fact that he... Uh, ends up calling Ayn Rand by a different name is probably in part, I mean, he's probably got the sense that maybe he's not really accurately depicting her or her ideas and wants to hedge a bit, though notably he doesn't do that with the name of the philosophy. He, he calls it objectivism uh, all over the place. Uh, Though, as I think you you observed, Keith, in, in a podcast he recently did, he he says, "Well, I'm no scholar of Ayn Rand or her philosophy," which is a interesting admission. But yeah, we should we should move on to and he, and he does say it's a, he does say it's a satirical academic critique. So I think there is a way in which he could say that he's this is meant to be somewhat of a parody. Um, yeah, though, if you're then going to uh, parody something, you don't also at the same time offer it as a serious intellectual critique, because to have a serious intellectual critique, you actually have to be critiquing the view, not a kind of cheap imitation of it, as, as I think you've been uh, pointing out. So I think we should now move to talking about the representation of the view that he gives, uh, because yeah, it, it's, it's uh, loaded with a number of misrepresentations of key objectivist ideas. Uh, at various points, as you, as you mentioned, Keith, the, the Galt's speech actually plays a role in this story because it's supposed to have been a fake. But for as much of a role as it plays in the story, to me at least, when I read the book, it doesn't seem like Wilson has actually read the speech or at least spent a lot of time trying to understand it. You already showed 
that one quotation about honesty uh, that that he's ignored. And I think there's there's more of this. The uh, what you end up getting is a kind of caricature uh, of Ayn Rand's ideas. So let's let's start by taking a look at one passage from Wilson's book, uh, which is his characterization basically of the of the ethical approach of objectivism. The way he puts it is the way that objectivists are supposed to act is by trying to make as much money as they can for themselves. The market ensures that this will deliver the highest value for society as a whole. Um, so that's that's kind of caricature one. And there's a number of different things to say about this. Uh, first of all, I mean, it's, it's, it's true that uh, objectivism insofar as it maintains that uh, the pursuit of one's happiness is the ultimate moral purpose does think that money is a good thing. Francisco Danconia gives a whole speech about it in the original book. But one of the things that Francisco says there is that money is only a tool, uh, that it's not an end in itself. Uh, that it's that it's a tool in the pursuit of the ultimate ends of end of one's own happiness and that's significant because it means that making money is not an end in itself it means that there are a lot of ways to achieve money uh, to achieve happiness you know which for most people are going to involve some money but not becoming the richest person in the world uh, you know most most of us who work at ar instance who are objectivists uh we're working in the nonprofit sector and we chose this work because we enjoy the work, uh, and you know what we get paid helps compensate for that to some extent. But it's 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 not a fortune that we're making here by any means. There's lots of different ways of pursuing one's own happiness. Uh, getting rich is not the only way. And even even in even in Ayn Rand's fiction, uh, those who do get rich get rich because they want more money so that they can engage in bigger and bigger, more exciting projects. Uh, Reardon wants to make money so that he can make more Reardon metal, so that he can make money so that he can make Reardon metal. There's a, a virtuous circle there. Um, so that's one point to make about this misrepresentation. Another is that even though uh, uh, he thinks that objectivists, uh, he thinks objectivists view this position as a, as a code of morality, uh, because by pursuing their self-interest, the way he put it in that quote was, it ensures this will deliver the highest value for society as a whole. Uh, but interestingly, objectivism's view here is even more radical than what Wilson thinks. The, the view is not that individual happiness is just a means to the end of the common good. Uh, just you know, for a variety of economic reasons, Ayn Rand does think that one person's productiveness benefits lots of other people uh, because when you create a new product, when you discover new knowledge that you can trade or teach other people, other people benefit. Well, but only certain other people, the ones who themselves are interested in benefiting them, their lives, the virtuous people. Uh, new achievements don't benefit people who are lacking in virtue, people who are vicious, people who are slothful, people who are lazy, people who'd rather stagnate. So it's not the case that she views uh, your pursuit of happiness as a means to the end. First of all, it doesn't always achieve other people's happiness, not if they're themselves uh, vicious, but it, she certainly doesn't think that that's the justification. She thinks that your own life is its own justification. It's not justified by how it contributes to anyone else's, uh, but that uh, 
you know, for rational people, there is a harmony of interests. And uh, so Keith, um, you- Yeah, well, I just wanted to add, I wanted to add to what you're saying. Well, the idea that, um, the idea that the only goal is to make as much money as possible as a way of keeping score and beating others. I mean, Ayn Rand has a, has a whole perspective on what the, what a, 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 li a rational life in pursuit of happiness looks like for a human being. And it's in, and the kind of both material and spiritual values that go along with that. So this idea, this sort of, there's an attempt to caricature this as like crass materialism as, as people would put it, but that is absolutely the opposite of her perspective. Um, yeah, and one so, way you can see this is, yeah. is uh, an aspect of the quote that you showed earlier. And actually, let me put up on the screen another quote from Galt's speech, which sounds the same theme. Uh, this much is true. The most selfish of all things is the independent mind that recognizes no authority higher than its own and no value higher than its judgment of the truth. Now that's important. We're gonna come back to aspects of this later, but I mean, one thing that it shows you right there is that she doesn't say the most selfish thing is piling up of money. She says the most selfish thing is grasping the truth, is the pursuit of the truth. And uh, which truths are important to which people will of course vary from person to person. But that, I mean, this is part of her reason why she sees honesty as a virtue. Um, and it's it's also, an example of what you were just referring to. It's a, a spiritual aspect uh, of selfishness that does not reduce to you know, mere material possessions or something like that. So let's take a look at another misrepresentation in the Wilson book. Um, his view of objectivism's view of society and this is, I think, a caricature that you hear not just from him, but from a lot of people who talk about Ayn Rand's philosophy. The world is divided, he, the way he puts it is, the world is divided into doers and moochers. The doers are responsible for everything that is good and the moochers just weigh them down. So uh, lots of things to say about this characterization. Uh, first, I don't know where he's getting the term doers from. That's not a book, that's, that's not a word that's in, that she uses. Uh, she does talk about creators. She does talk about producers. And I mean, that's an interesting difference right there because the, the, if there's a doing that matters in Ayn Rand's view, it is an intellectual doing, um, the pursuit of science and technology and innovation. Uh, now she does use the word moochers, though even here, I think uh, it's often a character how much she uses it. It appears three or four times in the entire novel Atlas Shrugged, I, I looked it up last night. And she certainly doesn't think that everyone is either a producer or a moocher. She thinks there's a big gray area in between. These are like the polar opposites of, this, of the social spectrum, but they don't exhaust uh, the, the social universe. And part of the reason that's important is because, well, when Galt is giving his speech, who is the audience for the speech? Why bother giving an, a speech to an entire nation? Uh, if you think there's all the all the producers in the world are already in the valley and everybody else is a moocher. Well, it's because there's a large gray area in between and he's trying to reach the best in the people who are in between to convince them in it, to come over to his side. Uh, and yeah, there's a few few people who are moochers who you know, underestimate because they have a deleterious effect on society, but it, it's not a, 
only black and white split. There's black and white on the ends and gray in the middle. I do think that she does divide up the world into two uh, aspects, but not in the way that Wilson imagines. And I'll just share a quote here where I think that fundamental divide is. And this is again, something that comes right out of the speech. Uh, Galt says, man has a single basic choice to think or not. And that is the gauge of his virtue. Moral perfection is an unbreached rationality, not the degree of your intelligence, but the full and relentless use of your mind, not the extent of your knowledge, but the acceptance of reason as an absolute. And so, uh, yeah, everyone either is a thinker or a non-thinker, but notably, again, there's a lot of different ways of being a non-thinker. You can be somebody who's simply not actively trying to figure out the world, drifting through life, in a kind of lazy way, or you can be a more active evader, somebody who uh, rationalizes uh, the way the world is to suit their prejudices. Uh, the moochers, uh, the, the most evil people, according to, to Rand, are those evaders. They're, that's one kind of non-thinker. But again, you can be a drifter who's in between, uh, but that's still not being a thinker. And she does think that is an important choice. Yeah, I want to add to what you say, because it's a it's a really common distortion of Rand's views to claim that she has uh, this kind of elitist or almost plutocratic view of people or, or, or the idea that she had contempt for the for the ma the so-called masses. Um, the, there's there's you definitely get the implication in Wilson's book and also in the way people talk about it that she thinks that, almost all of humanity are just a bunch of moochers and looters and she, that she has contempt for them. That is so completely the opposite of the truth. She, the, one of the more funda, one of the fundamental ways that she divides people is, as you put it, you just talked about thinkers versus non-thinkers, but she talks about the productive versus the unproductive. And this is at all levels of wealth. Are you, are you somebody who's honest and rational and productive in whatever work you do at whatever level that work is? Um, you know, whether you're, whether you're, a, whether you're a truck driver, a day laborer, or the CEO of a corporation, the, 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 what matters morally is, are you, are you productive or not? Or, or, or are you trying, or are you trying to be unproductive and get away with being unproductive in other ways? She has a lot of places where she talks about the, her view that she thinks that the sort the, the so-called masses, you know, the, the, the average American people, for instance, she has a lot of respect for them. And she thinks that in many ways, they're better than the intellectuals. She had a lot of contempt for, for her contemporary intellectuals because she thought that they were dishonest, they were power lusting, they were trying to put things over on, on the people, that they, that, that, you know, the kind of liberal elite intellectuals had this elitist view and have and and have the very contempt for the masses that they claim she had. She did not have any of that. Yeah, and if you if you look at the actual story, if you read the actual story, you can't miss this. I mean, uh, Wilson's read enough of it to know about Galt's Gulch and about the people who live in the valley, and you do see that exact same cross section. You see everybody from truck drivers to CEOs to and bankers who are living in this valley. And the same goes, by the way, for the villains that the, I mean, some of the, I mean, some of the biggest villains of the novel are who you might call plutocrats, people like uh, James Taggart, and even people who are supremely intelligent, 
like Robert Stadler and Floyd Ferris. Interestingly, Floyd Ferris is the evil biologist uh, who uh, is, is critical of, um, of rational ideas. So it's, yeah, she, it, it's not an issue of social status or class uh, or even raw ability because someone like Stadler has raw ability, but in, in the way that Rand frames it at least, he doesn't use it in a rational way to achieve rational purposes, uh, to to work for the you know the pursuit of life on Earth, as opposed to uh, in his case he's 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 pursuing knowledge detached from any practical concerns. Let's look at one last big misrepresentation that I think comes out in this Wilson book, uh, and this is again her uh, the way he sees individual morality interfacing with social existence. And here he's speaking of Rant's vision. That's, that's of course, his kind of caricature of Rand. Rant's vision began and ended with heroic individuals, the doers, who must free themselves from the shackles imposed upon them by society. In Nansen's vision, this is another thinker that he's uh, commenting on, heroic individuals always operate as members of groups. Picked couldn't survive more than a few years in a Colorado Valley, despite being bankrolled by Midas Mulligan, because they didn't know how to work together to achieve a common goal. The groups assembled by Nansen could survive for years in the harshest conditions on Earth, because uh, they did not know how to work together to achieve common goals. Um, so lots of things to say about this. Uh, first of all, the the idea that he's conveying here is that Ayn Rand and objectivism advocate for something like what you might call atomistic individualism, the idea that individuals uh, can be metaphysically self-sufficient uh, all by themselves, uh, living on a desert island, uh, and derive no benefit from social existence, uh, aren't capable of benefiting from cooperation. But that's just false. It's, it's not the case that she thinks that individuals are like this. She does think they can choose to cooperate uh, toward a common end, especially if it's a common chosen end. And, well, and particularly the idea that this is the meaning of individualism and self-interest. Part of what people miss is that she's reconceptualizing the concept of, self, of selfishness and uh, in a way that more accurately captures what is in fact in a person's self-interest and the benefits of social existence to an individual are so huge and and she and and that she, and she recognizes that that this is why you know this 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 caricature of the sort of atomic atomistic individualism bears no relation to her actual view i think we have another quote that brings this out yeah and it's a quote that's actually even talking about the valley, the very valley that Wilson has caricatured by saying, oh, they wouldn't be able to survive there that long because they don't cooperate. Well, here's what, here's the way the valley is actually characterized and, and, and also there are reasons for going there. Uh, and this is, this is actually stated by Hugh Axton, uh, the character in the book. We were scattered all over the country as the outcasts we had always been. Only now we accepted our parts with conscious intention. Our sole relief were the rare occasions when we could see one another. We found that we liked to meet in order to be reminded that human beings still existed. So we came to set aside one month a year to spend in this valley, 
to rest, to live in a rational world, to bring our real work out of hiding, to trade our achievements. Here, where achievements meant payment, not expropriation. Each of us built his own house here at his own expense for one month uh, of life out of 12. It made the 11 easier to bear. And then this is the line that one always remembers uh, because it puts such an interesting spin on a cliche. You see, Miss Taggart, said Hugh Axton, man is a social being, but not in the way the looters preach. And I mean, it's interesting that this, uh, there's no commentary on, on this passage. And it's, I think it's significant because, I mean, if, if, if Wilson had mentioned it, he would have to grapple with the fact that trade and commerce, and he talks about trading our achievements through payment, not expropriation. Uh, he would have to grapple with the fact that, that these are aspects of our being social beings, that trade and commerce are the paragon form of cooperation, where people benefit from each other by mutual consent to mutual advantage. And that a society in which people coexist and cooperate on the basis of mutual, co mutual trade is a society where there is a kind of unity, but it's the kind of unity that allows people to coexist and pursue their own purposes and their own forms of happiness. And so and I think this is why, this is a big part of why Wilson needed to uh, rewrite this part of the story uh, to say, oh, the, you know, the, the, the people in the valley ended up having to fail. He wants to sell this idea that only through some form of cooperation other than trade can people survive. We'll get to his reasons for that shortly. Yeah. Uh, of I, course, it's not true. I once heard a, I once heard a great statement on it. I don't remember who said this, but it, it was that uh, talking about the, uh, this, this caricature of individualism and it's that, you know, to live for yourself doesn't mean you have to live by yourself. <laughs> so, and I think that captures the idea. I mean, I mean, trade and the division of labor and, and just human social interaction. I mean, these are critical, these are crucial selfish values for people. Yeah, and it's it's also worth thinking about what's the alternative if if you don't think that uh, that trade to mutual advantage by mutual consent is the is the appropriate form of human cooperation, what else is? Well, it's going to be a form of existence in which one person wins and another person loses, uh, where one person is sacrificed to the goals or the objectives of the other and not through anyone's consent. So what does that look like in practice? It's interesting because there's, and we'll get to very shortly, Wilson's argument for a form of collectivism. He tries to argue that the kind that he's arguing for is not the totalitarian kind of collectivism, not the socialism or, or fascism of the 20th century. He says it's something else. Uh, and well, but if that's the case, uh, uh, and if he's not talking about cooperation through mutual consent, what what form is that cooperation going to take, and what kinds of sacrifices would he justify? So let's now let's take a look at this argument that he gives, because the, the, the last big thing that I think we need to talk about, Keith, is, I mean, the way I'm putting it, frankly, is the philosophical obtuseness of of the argument that, that he gives. Now, Wilson's not a philosopher, he's a biologist, and he's the 
I mean, I, I suspect that he's probably done some good work in biology, but there's a kind of attitude that you see among, especially a lot of kind of public intellectual scientists that we don't really need philosophy, that science gives us all the answers. And you'll see in a moment that the argument that he gives for collectivism is sort of in this spirit, but it's, well, the, the reason I'm saying it's philosophically obtuse is because I think it's probably based on some actual biological facts, but yeah. lacking the philosophic perspective, he doesn't see how these, the facts that he's citing fail to add up logically to the conclusion that he's arguing for. Yeah, I mean, it's so so you're about to explain his view. It's a kind of it's it's and it's grounded in in an evolutionary perspective. I think what part of the problem is it's one thing to view evolution as you know the fundamental integrating principle in biology, which it is, but it's another thing to view it as a fundamental integrating principle for all of the humanities and for a whole perspective on society and and culture and civilization. And this is what he's trying to do. The, I think there's the the you know, it's a sort of uh, if if all you have is a hammer, every problem looks like a nail kind of uh, situation. But why don't you why don't you explain his perspective on how he thinks evolution provides the key to human social organization? Yeah, I will. But I'll, let me just add to your hammer nail point because uh, I guess from another perspective, it's not just philosophically obtuse; it's also kind of scientifically obtuse because I mean, he actually has the temerity to say that the evo that evolution is the secret to everything but somebody in a different scientific field with a different scientific with a different hammer uh could say the same thing and probably with more plausibility i mean keith you're an astrophysicist uh if, if there's going to be a science that has a claim to be to literally connect to everything i think you know astrophysics or quantum mechanics probably has a better uh, uh you know better chance at doing that i still don't think it does um, but, you know, imagine, you know, what, what would a physicist say to, to uh, this biologist? He'd probably think this is a pretty naive perspective. But let's look at the biological arguments um, yeah. that he gives. Uh, and I'll, I'll, I'm not going to put these on the screen, um, but I'll just quote a few passages where he lays out some premises and comes to a conclusion. Uh, he, the character here is describing the kind of intellectual epiphany that he comes to at one point after having taken an evolutionary biology class. Uh, he says, he thinks about how the Buddhists think that life is filled with suffering. We'll leave that with a question mark. But he says, then I realized there is an important exception to this rule. Goodness has decisively triumphed over evil within every healthy organism. Okay, interesting, interesting premise, plausibly true. He goes on, but the concept of an organism is not as simple as it might seem. An organism need not be bounded by a membrane. Okay, interesting. What does he mean by that? Well, he gives an example. He says, it's a matter of cooperation and coordination, not physical boundedness. A honeybee colony, for instance, qualifies as an organism, for example, even though its workers are dispersed over an area of several square kilometers. Okay, well, that's, that's an interesting hypothesis. Uh, I don't want to deny that. I don't want to affirm it either. It's something that warrants further investigation. Honeybee colonies are interestingly coordinated. But then our species is the primate equivalent of honeybees, which makes a small human group an organism of sorts. 
And now he really starts to cash in his conclusion. Some larger societies, which are products of cultural evolution, also qualify as organisms only when they are appropriately structured. It's a matter of degree, not all or not. So that's basically his argument for collectivism. Uh, and it's, it's the argument that the, that the character then found movement on the basis of gets lots of people to follow him as a kind of Christ-like figure. Uh, you see people sort of magically coming together when he sends them certain signals and they march on Philadelphia to have a new American revolution. So how to think about this argument? Well, it's like what I said before, it starts off, I think, with some very plausible premises, but then infers conclusions that just aren't justified on the basis of those premises. So one thing I'll start by saying is that the idea that a living organism is the special naturalistic locus of the concept of value, uh, of, of achieving values in the face of, I guess, what you might call entropy, that's a really important truth that I think Wilson has latched onto. Uh, so important, actually, that Ayn Rand herself noticed it. It's, it's the basis of her whole argument in Galt's speech for uh, the ethics that he proposes. It's only the concept of life that makes the concept of value possible. Uh, she wrote a whole nonfiction article called The Objectivist Ethics with this same premise, cashing out its implications. So uh, I wonder if Wilson noticed that. Uh, next, the point that an organism isn't necessarily defined by a membrane. Interesting point. Um, what is the organism? Is it the individual bacterium or is it the colony of bacteria? I'm not a scientist, I'm not a biologist. I don't really know the answer to that question. And I think that it's also true that when you, you go up the evolutionary ladder and look at things like schools of fish, flocks of birds, ant colonies, beehives, et cetera, it's true that, that the kind of behavior that you see there in a certain way is a little bit more like the, the organic collective of the bacteria colony. And you know, from one perspective, you could see the individual bee as the organism. From a, from a different perspective, uh, you, could, you could look at the, the colony, the hive, as more organic. But it's a, it's a scientific question. I think that scientists should be the ones to settle. I'm surprised Wilson doesn't mention the naked mole rat, you know, who, uh, I'm, not, I, I'm not a biologist, but my understanding is that this is a species of mammal that actually lives in colonies that are socially structured very much like ants and honeybees and that sort of thing. So uh, just wanted to bring up. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a scientific question. There's a whole scientific question also, but what's the unit of natural selection? Uh, I know he has views on this. Uh, at certain points, he even says it's the individual that's the unit of selection. And you'd have to think about well, what's the implication of that for defining the organism. But push that aside. Um, I think the crucial point that Wilson misses at this point is that the kind of individualism that Ayn Rand argues for, that objectivism argues for, isn't based on the idea that what individuates us uh, is our membrane. I mean, that's part of it. It's a necessary condition of our being individuals. But the more fundamental criterion by which we individuate ourselves 
is through our choices. It is a crucial fundamental of objectivism, which Galt spends some time talking about in his speech, and I already quoted part of where he does it, that human beings have free will, that human beings can make choices, that they're not deterministic products of their genetics or their environment, that they don't have to go along with any kind of dictates or values that other people are giving them. And that's a fundamental difference between us and bees or ants or a coral reef. We're not programmed to operate in some kind of collectivistic fashion. We can make choices. That's the main reason why we're individuals. And so it would only be by denying the existence of free will uh, that this kind of argument for collectivism would work. And he doesn't comment on the issue. I'll show soon, in fact, how there's a lot in the story which would seem to point to the evidence for the fact that we have free will. Now, it is true that individuals are capable of a kind of organized unity as a society. Uh, and as he himself puts it, uh, only, if, if, only if, they, if they act in the right way, which again is evidence of the fact that we have free will, that we make choices that aren't determined. Um, but what does that look like? What does it look like for a society to be unified according to the voluntary cooperation of individuals? Well, something like what I was suggesting before, a society where people choose to engage in certain relationships and not others, only the ones where they can benefit from each other. Uh, and he himself you know, realizes this. It's that there is this choice to cooperate or not. It's, it's why. I think he has to say, well, we can only have any kind of unity if we structure things the right way. Well, who's the we that's doing the structuring? It's, it's the individuals choosing to cooperate toward purposes that they agree with or not. And so, I don't know, Keith, did you want to jump in before I, I move to the next point where I, I show the quote? Well, his, just his, his, the way he portrays social organization and his vision of social organization is really not very clear. It's, it's really unclear what he means when he's trying to project the idea of, of an organism onto small, group of, small groups of social, uh, social structures in, in a human setting. And I think that's, you know, I think the quote that you're, you're, you want to show next uh, speaks to that. So, Yeah, I mean, the point that I'm going to show that Ayn Rand herself made is I think what really gets to the essence of this, of what's wrong with this argument. Um, because and it's true that, that there's a biological basis for value. It's even true that <clears throat> certain kinds of living organisms live in a more collective way. But that's not the way that human beings actually live. So here's a quote from Ayn Rand, what is capitalism? This appeared in her book, Capitalism, the Unknown Ideal. She says, mankind is not an entity, an organism, or a coral bush. The entity involved in production and trade is man. It is with the study of man, not of the loose aggregate known as community, that any science of the humanities has to begin. Now here's, I think, the next paragraph is really crucial. A social system is a set of moral, political, economic principles embodied in society's laws, institution, and government, which determine the relationships, the terms of association among the men living in a given geographical area. 
it's obvious that these terms and relationships depend on an identification of man's nature, that they would be different if they pertain to a society of rational beings or to a colony of ants. It is obvious that they will be radically different if men deal with one another as free, independent individuals on the premise that every man is an end in himself, or as members of a pack, each regarding the others as the means to his ends and to the ends of the pack as a whole. Uh, and I mean, that, I think that, that speaks directly to what Wilson is saying. I mean, there's a certain point that like, if there were an ethics for ants or bees, uh, which of course there couldn't be because they don't make choices and they are programmed by their genetics. But if there were an ethics for these more collectivistic kinds of organisms, then yeah, it might well be a collectivistic ethics. Uh, but in fact, they don't make choices. Only human beings do. And the fact that we do means it's going to be a very different kind of ethics that's, that we need to guide our decisions. We are not given a goal by our genetics or our environment. We have to choose goals that we will pursue. And that can include choosing goals that we share with other people uh, and with which we cooperate them to achieve these goals. But uh, that's even still a chosen goal. That's that's the basis for an individualistic ethic. And so, Keith, I also mentioned that I think the only way you could really uh, defend the kind of argument that Wilson's giving here is if you denied the existence of free will, which of mm -hmm. course I think a lot of public intellectual scientific types like to do. And he may well actually be one of these types. But so that's the reason why one of the last things that I wanted to do uh, today. And, and you know, before I do this, I should mention, uh, we, we'd really be happy to get some questions from people. So if you're watching on Zoom, uh, please feel yeah. free to enter a question into the yeah, Q&A module. I do see a few come out, yeah. Uh, and also, if you're, on, if you're on YouTube, please uh, choose to support, you may choose to, to support the channel by using the super chat function. Um, so we'll get to some of those questions soon. But yeah, so there are a lot of uh, scientists who will deny the existence of free will. This is a topic that I've written about a lot. Uh, we've done other podcasts on it. It's, we could do more. But what is our free will? What is the ability that we have to act or not act in defiance of any kind of determinism? Well, I've already gestured toward that and what Rand's view of it is in that quote that I read you about how Galt thought that we have a single basic choice, the choice to, to think or not to think. And I just want to argue that that is a view that's actually implicit in the entire practice of science, in the whole idea that there are scientific values that you can either embrace or discard. You actually see this all over Wilson's book himself. You see his character making one choice rather than another. And I won't go through all of them, but I'll just mention, for instance, you know, at one point, like page 72, uh, a, a, then it hit me that all these scientific books had one thing in common, a deep commitment on the part of the authors to tell the truth about the particular corner of the world that they are writing upon. Uh, a commitment that some people make that others don't or I have become more purposeful, this is page 152, I've become more purposeful than anyone I know. That's not innate, something I was born with. It was acquired or rather assembled. I jokingly say that I have joined the cult of scholars, but what that means is that I have become dedicated to the pursuit of knowledge. 
there's a lot of other passages like that. Uh, but what those point to is that if you think that it's better to be scientific, if it's bad to be prejudiced, if it's good to look for objective facts, if it's bad to be uh, subjective and just go along with social convention, then you think there is this same basic choice too. That's what embracing a scientific worldview means. But then that implicitly means you're embracing the idea of human free will. And that's the major point that I think undercuts and undermines this argument he's making for collectivism. So that's the, I think that's most of what I wanted to say uh, in response to his argument. And I think it's interesting that, uh, that the, many of the resources, the intellectual resources that objectivism has, that he papers over in his various caricatures are some of the very resources that you would use to answer this argument. And that's why, that's the only reason it ends up looking persuasive to him. Yeah, why don't we, why don't we take a few questions because some of them are coming in over the chat. I think we're, uh, we both yeah. agreed we'd be willing to go a little longer if we had questions and we have a couple more things to say at the end. So this will, we'll go a little longer on this podcast than usual because I think it's interesting to, to do this. So um, the first question came in from YouTube. Um, I guess this is back when we were talking about how he's reimagining the story and the question is, how does Wilson explain away the existence of an actual motor? So we, we were, I was pointing out that in Wilson's reimagining, Galt's motor is a fiction. It doesn't work and, the, and the, the motor doesn't exist. How does he explain away the existence of an actual motor at the 20th century motor company? Well, the, uh, remember that the motor that's the remnant of the motor that's found at the 20th century motor company is broken and doesn't work. So he says something about how he took some scientific equipment and smashed it with a hammer and left it in the factory. I think the real question is how does he explain away the working motor that exists in the valley and in Galt's laboratory, which, you know, I mean, in, the, in Atlas Shrugged, the motor is real and it works and, the, and it's used all in, in these places. So, yeah, I mean, there's no explanation of that. It's just papered over. Um, and then this is just another example of how he's, he's actually rewriting the story and pretending that the story is different than it actually was. Right. In order to make it, in order to make different, a different point to present a different philosophy and not actually engage with Rand's views. So is the author known to disagree with objectivism as a pre-existing work to support his viewpoint one way or another? It sounds from our descriptions, it sounds clear he's a non-objectivist. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. He he did an interview with Michael Shermer in the Skeptic Society, and one of the first things out of his mouth is he's not an Ayn Rand scholar. And that's why he was glad to talk to Michael Shermer, who for some bizarre reason he views as an expert on knowledgeable about objectivism. You know, that's a that's a topic for a whole other podcast, uh, Michael Shermer's distortions of objectivism. Um, but no, he's definitely not an objectivist. Um, it turns out that he has done, I'm not sure you could actually call it scholarly work, but he's got a paper where he does an analysis of the concept of selfishness in different works. And so it does seem like he went through the book, Ayn Rand's book, The Virtue of Selfishness, um, for the purpose of counting the times in which she uses words like selfish, altruistic, you know, these moral concepts in order to do some sort of analysis on it. Um, I, it, it, I, uh, I don't think you could characterize it as um, any attempt to really get at what she's arguing for in the book. Um, it, it's, uh, yeah, so I, I don't think there's, so, um, 
it's it, it is clear from his pre previous work that he disagrees with objectivism. I would say that. So, in connection with that, I think it might be interesting to answer the question someone asked about whether ARIs offered Wilson to engage in a live discussion about his book. If so, did it get a response? So we haven't done that. Um, whether we would is an interesting question. I mean, I think. Uh, well, here let me say this first. Like, what we would be very happy to do is to engage with a scholar who's critical of objectivist ideas, who, first of all, accurately represents them, who is, I mean, there is such a thing as an honest critic of somebody who doesn't agree with your philosophy, uh, but who's done the work that it takes to study this person's philosophy, to understand what its major conclusions are, what are the major reasons given for the conclusions, uh, and to then, you know, explain why they don't think these reasons are good for these, are, you know, actually logically justify these conclusions. I think, and we have had, uh, we have had uh, discussions and debates with, with many of these types of honest critics in the past. So, like, a private condition of ever having an actual discussion with Wilson uh, would, would be, to begin with, some acknowledgement on his part uh, that that he has misrepresented the objectivist ideas we've talked about in the ways that he's done, and then you know a willingness to uh, you know to hear the actual reasons and and then to discuss those. Um, yeah, I just want to add to that. I mean, th this is part of the reason why we were motivated to do this podcast, to do this topic in the first place, because as we said at the very beginning, you know, uh, uh, as uh, uh, an intellectual who was who was interested in a serious engagement with Ayn Rand's ideas and to, honest, to do and really honestly look at what she actually advocated, uh, you know, it would be really, would be a really welcome thing. And, and as you said, um, you know, the, the Ayn Rand Society as part of the American Philosophical Association has annual meetings and people who disagree with objectivism do come and, and there are, there is serious engagement with Rand's actual philosophical views. And so there is fruitful discussion that happens in those settings. But, um, you know, what, what's more common and is really quite disappointing is just the sheer intellectual shoddiness of the people who claim to be criticizing Ayn Rand. I mean, um, you know, Paul Krugman of the New York Times is a typical example. Everything that he ever says about her is a complete hash and distortion. And, and yet, you know, it, it's, uh, he, he claims to be criticizing her actual views. So one of the other questions we got is, is it fair to say that, that Atlas Hugged is a, is a straw man? Um, I, you know, there's this concept of us, of us, people talk about this, this fallacy of the straw man versus the idea of a steel man. The steel man is the idea that you, you try to make the best possible case for your opponent's argument and then argue against that. Um, that is the kind of thing that we would absolutely welcome. If somebody wants to do a steel man, you know, critique of Ayn Rand, of Atlas Shrugged, of objectivism, that would be wonderful. But I think, I think, yes, I think the only way you could describe this is it's, it's a, it's an absolute straw man and a caricature of Rand's novel and of Rand's uh, philosophy. I would just add one more thing. I mean, you mentioned that uh, it's, it's disappointing when, you know, the, the overwhelming majority of critics of objectivism mischaracterize and misrepresent its actual ideas. There are a few exceptions, uh, but it's especially disappointing when the people doing that misrepresentation are scientists who otherwise 
uh, events some kind of respect for the importance of finding the truth. And even in, especially in this book, I mean, one of the things that Wilson himself says is he, the character sees himself as a member of the so-called cult of scholars, the community of inquirers who've you know, been the gatekeepers of truth and knowledge, who, who right. vet the different scholarly journals and how anyone can just go on to Google Scholar and find the latest science on any topic. Well, guess what? That's true about objectivism too. That's you can actually read books and uh, journal articles, some of them even peer-reviewed, about what objectivism actually is. And he seems not to have applied his own advice to his to his writing on this topic, uh, and instead to conf to uh, accuse Ayn Rand of not looking for the truth. Well, he didn't even look to see whether she was doing that in the places that it would be most relevant to look. We got a we got a super chat question asking, does he mention Project X? So this is this is another thing that's worth saying is is the actual story and events and characters of Atlas Shrugged very actually play a very little role in Atlas Hugged. You know, it's it's hardly anything from the story is actually um, carried over and proceeds from the novel. This is another way in which it's bizarre to think of this as a as a as any kind of sequel. You know, it's not the 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 it bears almost no relation to the original work. Um, so no, he definitely does not mention Project X. But thank you for the super chat uh, question. Um, yeah, related to what that, the question of are the misunderstandings reasonable yeah. enough to call the book something other than a smear? I don't think so. I I, I mean, again if you're going to spend seven years writing a 400 page work that's intended to be a sequel and, a, and, a, and an academic critique, even if it's supposed to be a satirical academic critique, you know, you need to do your homework. And that's, that's, um, that's definitely not something that's happened here. I, I, I think I would, I think it's, I would go further than calling it a smear. I think this is a, the, 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 the presumptuousness of calling this a sequel to Atlas Shrugged. I actually view this as a kind of intellectual vandalism is the way I would describe it. And I would say that it's also particularly curious vandalism from the following perspective. Uh, at one point he describes what he's doing as satire. Uh, for reasons we already discussed, it's, it's hard for something to be both satire and intellectual critique at the same time. If you're satirizing something and you're imitating it in a loose way to make fun of it, you can't then critique the same thing in a serious intellectual way. Uh, but for satire, it, it, the circumstances of this kind of satire are strange. He spends 400 pages satirizing or critiquing or whichever of the things he's doing. I mean, this is the kind of thing that would make somebody wonder whether he protests too much. Like if this is such a silly uh, set of ideas, why would you need to spend 400 pages uh, complaining about them? If, I mean, I, this I wonder if brush aside and say that's not serious let's move on to the next thing yeah I, I wanted to talk about the whole phenomenon of fan fiction um mm. which you brought up at the very beginning you know sort of poorly written sequels to famous works now i think you know a lot of this much of this i think is fairly harmless and i think it's often meant as a as an homage to the original work you know if you think about yeah. all the fan fiction around harry potter i mean these are people who just love the characters and they love the fictional universe so they write a story about themselves going to hogwarts you know i i think um and and there are people who take more serious professional attempts at this 
Um, I mean, who doesn't get to the end of Pride and Prejudice, you know, and, and dying to know what Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy's life is like when they finally get to Pemberley. So there's all these novels, you know, Pemberley that you find, you can find them on Amazon. So again, I mean, I think this is done by people who love the fictional universe so much that they don't want to leave it, right? And I, I think it's often an expression of, of love and respect for the original work. So, but, but this situation is so bizarre because it's clearly somebody who has no respect at all for Rand or her writings or, or her ideas and who's written, you know, this sort of clumsy, pretentious sequel to Atlas Shrugged in order to attack everything that people actually value about it. Um, you know, so it, it's, I've, I mean, I've heard of fan fiction, but I've never encountered something that could only be described as sort of hate fiction, you know? Agreed. Do we have any other questions that we want to discuss? Or should I mean, we there start was to wrap? Question, there was a question from YouTube um, asking, I'm not sure I fully understand the question. Rand portrays America as a straw man in Atlas Shrugged, as a country that's fundamentally corrupt and can be destroyed. What do you have to say about that? I'm not sure what it means to say that she's portraying America as a straw man. I mean, she has a view of what are the philosophical premises that um, have shaped history and are um, and in many ways have corrupted America. But if you look at the 20th century and if you look at all the totalitarian horrors in World War II and communism and Nazism, you know what explains those things. So her view is that is that uh, the and and you know we don't, I don't know, the time to go into this in great detail, but this is all everywhere in her writings that the morality of altruism is the basis for all the, all the evils uh, that have occurred. And so she has a view of the way in which America, though founded on the principles of individualism and individual rights, nevertheless also has, uh, is dominated by the morality of altruism and, and has, is corrupting the country in various ways. So she's, she's projecting a story, you know, taking contemporary America and projecting it into the future where where the economy is, you know, where the economy is collapsing uh, and culture is is uh, disintegrating as a result of the philosophical ideas that it holds, and she's, you know, that's what she's um, projecting in the novel, and it's part of her it's part of her philosophical explanation of of how philosophy influences a culture. So I'm not sure what it means to say this is a straw man. This is a, a fictional presentation of the country and as part of the events of her story. And I wonder if part of what's motivating the question here is uh, wondering if we're trying to make, if, if Rand was committing the same mistake that we're accusing Wilson of making. Uh, so for instance, it, it's, it's, we're saying that it's uh, strange to say that there's a, there, there was an evil objectivist empire uh, because in fact, I think object less influence on the culture than he seems to think. But he could say something similar. He could say, well, but if you take these ideas seriously, projecting down the road a certain number of decades, we would get uh, something like what he describes. Um, but I think that's where it's important that uh, he's getting her ideas wrong. You only get to make these sort of projections if you're projecting the consequences of the right ideas. Uh, he, for instance, basically argues that what you see right now, the widespread uh, culture of fake news and 
alternative facts that you see in right-wing media and, and uh, contemporary kind of make America great again conservatism is in some way a product of Ayn Rand's influence. Yeah, which I mean, it's worth is bizarre. Uh, it's worth mentioning that we, we haven't, we, I just want to say we haven't brought up John Galt II, who's supposedly the love child of John Galt I and Ayn Rand, and who's John Galt III's father. He's portrayed as a, a plutocratic media figure roughly along the lines of Rush Limbaugh. Uh, who we just who just uh, died recently? So that's his view of of who represents objectivism in today's world, and 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 you know the kinds of ideas that it stands for. It's a complete distortion. And it, the, the the justification given for why it's continuous is that well, John Galt II thought that John Galt I was too intellectually sophisticated, so he needed to dumb it down by appealing to the folksy religious people. Well, uh, for, to that, I'll just offer to David Wilson to take a look at the content that we produce, uh, the way we've been critical of that aspect of conservatism and of, of the whole alternative facts uh, position and how we're opposed to the tribalism that it has generated. Uh, and they can, they, if, they, if he really wants, he can look to see what we've written about President Trump and, and the phenomenon and his followers. So yeah, we should, we should start to wrap up. And I think the best way to do this is by giving uh, our audience some resources to learn more about objectivism. And if anybody is a follower of Wilson, they can take a look at some of these books to find out what objectivism's really all about. I mean, first of all, one thing you're going to want to do is to actually go to the horse's mouth, read the actual book, Atlas Shrugged, see how different it is from the story that's described uh, in Atlas Hugged but then realize that that speech is long for a reason, that it goes into a lot of detail, uh, that there's a whole system of philosophy there of metaphysics, epistemology, ethics. And if you want to learn more about that system of philosophy, uh, take a look at this next book, um, Objectivism, the Philosophy of Ayn Rand by Dr. Leonard Peikoff, which uh, illustrates all of the systematic interconnections of the philosophy, delves into some of the deeper issues that we talked about today. Um, that's written for a general audience too, by the way. Uh, for those out there who are members of the cult of scholars, so-called, if you'd like to learn more about how scholars have analyzed objectivist philosophy, I recommend taking a look at the companion to Ayn Rand. This is part of the Wiley Blackwell series on uh, philosophers, edited by Gregory Salmieri and Alan Gotthelf. Um, Keith mentioned a moment ago also what it looks like for there to be honest critics of objectivist ideas. And he mentioned the meetings of the Ayn Rand Society, which is a division of the American Philosophical Association. Well, they publish their proceedings. There have been, I think now three volumes of these published. They're, they're still going strong. Uh, take a look at the very first volume, which is called Metaethics, uh, Egoism and Virtue, which it, it contains back and forth between uh, advocates of objectivist ideas and critics. And I think all of the critics in this volume are the honest critics, the ones that we've been talking about, the ones who've taken the time to look to see what Rand's actual arguments are. And they don't agree with them, but they offer arguments against her arguments and then the advocates will respond. Uh, that's what honest criticism looks like. That's published by the University of Pittsburgh Press, I should mention. Um, we've also at the Ayn Rand Institute produced 
uh, other commentary on the kind of misrepresentation that you sometimes see, uh, like what's coming from Wilson. I wrote an article for our journal, New Ideal, back in 2018, called Real Philosophers Don't Just Reflect the Trendy Consensus. This was in response to an article by a uh, author at the American Philosophical Association, who I think was misrepresenting Rand's views. And you can see how I looked at her actual texts to explain why those were misrepresentations. Also recently, my colleague Ilan Giorno wrote another article for New Ideal called When Tribal Journalists Try to Cancel Ayn Rand. Uh, this is uh, in response to a number of high profile journalistic accounts of uh, objectivism and the objectivist movement uh, showing uh, how they commit, I think, many of the same kinds of uh, distortions and misrepresentations that Wilson does in his book. Uh, and let me just, uh, I'm going to only, I'm going to just give one more resource, uh, the last one on the list there, which is uh, notice that if you'd like to talk about some of these ideas with us uh, this coming week, uh, maybe you've heard about Clubhouse. It's the latest app where I think all the, uh, the cool kids on the internet are hanging out to talk about intellectually sophisticated topics these days. Uh, and it's you know where you can basically jump into the conversation. Um, I will be there Thursday night with Keith and also with Greg Salmieri, who's the editor of the Companion to Ayn Rand. That'll be Thursday, this Thursday night, 6.30 p.m. Pacific, uh, 9.30 p.m. Eastern. Uh, usually when we do these clubhouses, we go two, three hours uh, or as long as people are interested. So if, if you're on Clubhouse, you have to have an iOS phone at this point, unfortunately, but if you're on Clubhouse, join us, jump into the conversation explore some of these ideas with us more. So I think we should uh, then just start to wrap up and I'll, I'll, I'll mention to anyone who's watching that if you, uh, if you enjoyed what you saw today and you'd like to see more, of, uh, more episodes of New Ideal Live, then you can follow us on YouTube. Just hit that subscribe button. So when we post new videos or when we go live, you'll get a notification. You can also click the bell uh, to get that uh, notification. If you're watching on Facebook, you should also like or comment on the episode. Whether you, If you like or comment either on YouTube or on Facebook, it helps optimize the algorithm so that we get more people seeing these videos. Uh, share it, we'll also, sharing it will also help. And last of all, I'll say that if you have questions for us about what came up in today's episode, or if you have comments, or you'd like to even just suggest new topics for future episodes, you can always send us an email at newideal@einrand.org. We read all of this, we respond to many of the inquiries that we get, and we often will sometimes, will sometimes even do episodes of the kind that you suggest. Um, last of all, uh, Keith, I'll just mention that uh, next week's episode is again going to happen at the usual time, uh, Wednesday at, uh, at uh, two o'clock Eastern. And I don't know if we have slide for that. But yes, it's going to feature a conversation between my, our colleagues, Aaron Smith and Ankar Gatte on the question, can classics survive the charge of whiteness? So I uh, hope to see many of you there. Keith, thanks for having this conversation with me. I've been a little longer than usual, but I think there was a lot of substance to dig into yeah, here once we got past it was the ridiculous. Interesting. Yeah. yeah, thanks, Ben. Uh, it was interesting. We, uh, I hope we reached a few people out there to let them know what this philosophy is really all about. So thanks again. Uh, we will see you again next week. Thank you for joining us. You've been listening to New Ideal, a podcast from the Ayn Rand Institute. If you like what you hear, leave us a review, share with a friend, and subscribe to our other podcasts. 
This podcast was made possible by donors to the Ayn Rand Institute. Help support this podcast by becoming an ARI member. Go to aynrand.org forward slash membership.